0: I know their job is hard. I know that these guys are in it for the right reasons, and they're dealing with the sort of bruising cadence of Trump's uh, comments every single day. Uh, But they don't seem to be connected to reality any longer, and that is very, very disturbing.
1: Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak and the nation's response Today, I'm in conversation with Senator Chris Murphy. All right, I'm recording. The Democratic senator from Connecticut, who on Wednesday morning grilled Trump administration officials on their handling of the COVID 19 response. We talked about what he learned from that hearing, as well as his deeper concerns about the effort to strike down the Affordable Care Act in court, an effort that the Trump administration has supported. Here's that conversation. Senator Chris Murphy, welcome to Politico, Pulse Check.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: You just grilled top administration officials in a Senate Health Committee hearing about the COVID-19 response. And when I say just, I'm catching you right after stepping out of the hearing room. What do you think you learned from that hearing?
0: Well, listen, it's a mess out there. And I just think many of these public health leaders are in a bubble. They do not understand how this ever-changing guidance, this constant political interference from the White House into public health decisions uh, is creating an absolute nightmare for the people on the ground. Uh, In Connecticut, uh, every time I'm back, I'm spending time with uh, public health leaders, and they don't know who should be tested and who shouldn't. They aren't getting enough funding to set up tracing programs. They don't have clear guidance on how to get ready for a vaccination. They hear one thing from President Trump, they hear another thing from Redfield, then what Redfield says changes and then it changes again. Um, This is why the pandemic is advancing. This is why the virus is winning. Um, and, And I was really worried by some of the things that I heard today from Dr. Redfield. He's under this illusion that the guidance he had sent out in August, which clearly said people shouldn't get tested if they're asymptomatic, actually said people should get tested if they're asymptomatic. And so I know their job is hard. I know that these guys are in it for the right reasons, and they're dealing with the sort of bruising cadence of Trump's uh, comments every single day. Uh, But they don't seem to be connected to reality any longer. And that is very, very disturbing and another reason why we need to get this crowd out of the White House, out of the CDC uh, as quickly as possible.
1: In your hearing uh, questions, you really leaned into the issue of heart risk from COVID-19 and specifically whether people who suffered from COVID-19 could become pre-existing conditions. It's, I think, part of the ongoing effort by Democrats to really link the pandemic and the fallout to the Affordable Care Act and the risk of the ACA falling away in, in a court battle. How strategic is this by Democrats to make this the the point of attack when you're grilling administration officials?
0: Well, it's not strategic, right? It's reality. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, as Dr. Fauci said in answer to my question today, uh, we know enough about coronavirus to know that it very likely uh, becomes a pre-existing condition, that there is enough evidence that it can create uh, inflammation around the heart such that insurance companies are going to label it uh, as such a pre-existing condition. Uh, And what we know is that uh, the Republicans are attempting to stack the Supreme Court uh, with an anti-ACA majority, such that by the end of the year, the Affordable Care Act could be gone, and all the protections that come with it. Uh, Insurance companies are going to take advantage of that, and they are certainly going to raise rates on anyone who has had a COVID diagnosis, and they're going to be very interested in getting everybody tested. So, that they can find out whether folks who are asymptomatic also need to have their rates increased as well. So, you know, I mean, I understand that it's 45 days to the election. And so everything sort of gets colored by politics, but this is just what's going to happen. Uh, if the ACA gets struck down, COVID is going to be a pre existing condition. And everybody who has it is going to see their rates increase if they can even get insurance in the first
1: place. Well, let me ask my question a different way because I noticed that you leaned into the connection with the Affordable Care Act. Your Fellow committee member Senator Tim Kaine, was making a similar point. Democrats across the Senate and the House have come back to this again and again, the risk of ACA repeal. Is this something that the Democrats have gotten together and said, this is the message we need to lean into? Did you come to this on your own? You're someone who's talked a lot over the past months about the risk to the ACA.
0: Well, we obviously talked to each other, uh, and we have all come to the decision on our own. And thus we have come to the decision collectively that President Trump and Senate Republicans are trying to ram through a nominee before the election because there is a case pending right after the election that will allow them to finally invalidate the Affordable Care Act. So it it, it doesn't take a lot of strategic nuance to understand what's happening here. They couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act through the legislative process. Now they have the chance to do it and they've got to move fast because the case is about to be heard right after the election.
1: Do you think that this is the best way for Democrats to try and stop what's going to happen by pointing out the risk to millions of Americans? Do you think that will lead some Republicans to change their vote? Honestly,
0: people told us we couldn't stop the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, that it was a fait accompli, that, of course, Republicans having won the majority in the Senate, the House, and control of the presidency, would do what they had been promising to do the entire time they were in the minority. They ended up not being able to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And the reason is that the people wouldn't let them. There was enough pressure on the Senate, in particular, uh, to stop senators from voting for repeal. Uh, This is another repeal debate. If President Trump gets his selection put onto the court, the Affordable Care Act will be repealed, period, stop. And so the consequences are no different than the debate that we had in 2017. And thus, I think it's reasonable to believe that perhaps the outcome won't be different. Now, we have less time because they are gonna ram this judge through before the election, but the stakes are exactly the same.
1: Have you seen any indication that your appeals around the Affordable Care Act are having any impact on Republicans who might be wavering? about approving a justice before the election?
0: Well, you know, we're talking on Wednesday afternoon uh, and, um, you know, this vacancy has only existed for five days. I'm not sure that, you know, we would necessarily see the impact yet. We have to build a political movement, right? And, uh, you know, we have to build a political movement that's more serious than that, uh, that we but,
1: but you might But you, you might have to build that political movement in the span also of days if this vote is going to be in the next week or two.
0: No, absolutely. This is going to have to occur really fast, and that's the reason that Republicans are going to try to move this fast, not just because they want to get in under the election, but also uh, because they know the longer that we are able to tell the American people that their health care is going to disappear if this judge gets approved, uh, the less likely it is that they'll be able to get 50 votes.
1: Speaking of coronavirus, again, the focus of today's hearing, this is something that you have sounded the alarm on for months. You tweeted on February 5th, quote, just left the administration briefing on coronavirus, bottom line, they aren't taking this seriously enough. Now, again, that was the beginning of February before our worlds dramatically changed. What did you learn in that hearing more than seven months ago that made you so concerned?
0: Well, you know, if you read the rest of that tweet, I get very specific. I say we requested uh, emergency funds from the administration and they told us They didn't need any money that they could handle coronavirus with the money they had. We specifically requested the money in early February for supplies um, and for training because we knew that our public health professionals weren't ready. We knew that there was going to be a problem with uh, medical equipment like PPE. Um, And it stood to reason that having watched this virus move so incredibly rapidly and so lethally through China, knowing the inability to stop uh, that virus and the people who carry it from coming to the United States, that it was going to be a pandemic, that it was going to be an epidemic in the United States. And it was just frightening, bone chilling on February 5th to listen to uh, Republican administration members tell us that they had it taken care of. They believe that that the flight restrictions were going to stop coronavirus from coming to the United States. And thus, they didn't need to do anything to get ready. Republicans and Democrats in that room knew that wasn't true. We pressed them to get serious and they wouldn't. And I'm going to be honest, this was a lot of the people in that room were Dr. Fauci and uh, Alex Azar. I mean, the same people who are in charge today were in that room in February, um, not taking this seriously enough.
1: Fauci himself was not taking this seriously enough at the beginning of February?
0: I mean, listen, Fauci's in a, a tough position, I guess, because he's not a political decision maker. So maybe he just wasn't answering the questions that were most pointed on resources. But he was in that February 5th briefing, a, a briefing in which no one in the administration said that they would be requesting new money from Congress, uh, Fauci included. Again, Fauci's not the political decision maker. It probably isn't his place to request money from, from Congress, but no one in that briefing was taking this seriously enough.
1: When you look back over the past seven months, are there administration officials, are there administration efforts that you think have been good, have been successful, that have reassured you about the leadership of handling of this virus? None. Not a single one.
0: I mean, I'm serious. I I mean, name, name me an effort that they have undertaken that has worked. We don't have enough testing. We don't have enough PPE. We have no money for contact tracing. The vaccine distribution readiness is abysmal. The public relations campaign has been quixotic and contradictory. We have a president who pushes back against any efforts to try to enforce social distancing or mask wearing. They relied on a travel ban that was full of holes and didn't work. There has been nothing they have done that has worked. And and, and frankly, I mean, what defines their response is a lack of response they imposed the travel restriction, and then they effectively just gave up. I mean, what is so remarkable is that after the travel restriction, they just said, hey, states and cities, you deal with it. And if Congress makes us give you money, we'll give you some money. Uh, We'll stick some vague guidance on the CDC website, but it's gonna be largely unhelpful. Um, The administration has effectively, not effectively, the administration has surrendered. To the coronavirus, they surrendered back in March, and that surrender continues today.
1: So, with respect, I, I probably shouldn't have a Democratic uh, senator come on our podcast and go completely unchallenged. I do think that there was a failure, as we reported, as other news outlets have tracked across February into March, a lack of action, as you have teased out around testing, around planning, and it really wasn't until mid-March when things did get more serious. There are teams. That have been working around the clock for months, though, on various aspects of the virus. The issue might be that time was lost up front and continues to be lost by mixed messages and at times political interference with the scientific process. I I think that's where we are in the middle of September.
0: Yeah, you're way too fair. So, (laughs) I, I mean, mixed messages is a very, very kind way. To describe what is happening, the president is crowding his rallies with people who are not allowed to socially distance. Um, he is parading his own cabinet members uh, into the White House lawn, forcing them to sit next to each other and clearly putting pressure to not wear masks. Um, this isn't mixed messages, this is a consistent message. Right. People listen to the president of the United States, his followers, which include 30 to 40 percent of the country, don't take their instructions from Dr. Redfield. They take their instructions from President Trump. And and, and he has been pretty consistent about uh, how people should react to coronavirus. So do you,
1: do you think protesters, protesters either against President Trump or at Black Lives Matter rallies, are they consistently following what you think are good public health guidelines? Should they be congregating en masse during a pandemic?
0: Well, if you're going to congregate, you should be wearing masks. And I've been at many of these protests. And at those protests, um, maybe not everyone was wearing masks, but the vast majority of people were wearing masks. And at most of the large-scale protests, there has been a policy by organizers um, to encourage people to wear masks. That is, in fact, the opposite of what is happening at the president's rallies. Governor Nome in South Dakota proudly declared that no one would be wearing masks or social distancing when the president came there. No one was wearing masks during the president's convention speech. Um, I I think these are largely apples and oranges conversations.
1: I, I wanted to ask you about something that I haven't seen get a lot of attention, which is how our handling as a nation of coronavirus, how that is rippling across the globe. And you're someone who doesn't just focus on the help committee. You have foreign relations experience too. And I'm curious if you have already seen Changes and how the US is perceived internationally as a consequence of coronavirus running rampant across our nation?
0: Well, we are now the sick child of the world, uh, right? We can't travel anywhere. Our business people can't travel anywhere. And so our inability to solve this crisis has greatly weakened us. And the benefit to China is twofold. And China is the primary beneficiary, but there are other beneficiaries as well. First of all, China and other autocrats are trying to spin this narrative that democracy is dead, uh, that it is ineffective, that it is broken beyond repair, uh, and, well, America will never consider doing the kind of things that China did in order to get this virus under control. Um, It is a compelling narrative that um, here in the United States, our democracy, at least under this president, has been unable to get coronavirus um, uh, under heel, uh, and thus it lends credence to the argument that, you know, maybe you should make your country a little bit less democratic and a little bit more top-down control. Second, um, China's economy has recovered fairly quickly. uh, And thus, uh, they are able to lap us around the world economically at a really sort of pivotal moment when they're trying to push things like 5G into more corners of the globe, because we just can't compete. We can't send diplomats around the world. We can't send business leaders out around the world. So uh, both politically and economically, it's, it's harmed us uh, greatly. Um, it's robbed us of our moral leadership, but it has also robbed us of our practical ability to try to compete with our adversaries when we are you know, all locked down and it's an epidemic that, that, that won't disappear.
1: So to paraphrase, uh, it sounds like the irony is that a virus that came out of China, that China ultimately handled better than we have, may redound to China's benefit, even as we're struggling to get COVID under control.
0: You know, and and what's so frustrating is that um, we recognize the inefficiencies of democracy, and thus um, Congress has built into the statute emergency powers for the president in times of emergency, like an epidemic. And while it may seem kind of inconsistent for somebody like me to be calling on this president to exercise more emergency powers, I have been consistently because you cannot beat uh, a virus of this size without um, having national policies like national mask wearing mandates or more stricter national guidelines on business and school closures or the federalization of the defense production uh, or the, the, the medical supply chain. So, you know, we actually did give the president the ability to
1: cure for the inefficiencies of democracy. It's just that this president chose not to accept those tools. You have been a champion of using the Defense Production Act to increase supplies, increase equipment to fight COVID. At the same time, we have seen aspects of the federal government's response go directions that are unpredictable and, and perhaps big wastes of money. For instance, how the Pentagon has spent, I think, a billion dollars uh, from the CARES Act to buy planes and armor and things that have nothing to do with the COVID-19 response. Are you worried about empowering the federal government in ways that could come back to harm future response to public health?
0: Well, listen, I, I, of course, am worried about giving this administration additional powers or additional money to spend. The fact that this administration has bungled much of the spending power connected to pandemic response does not mean every government will uh, respond this ineptly. So I don't necessarily know that it means there's a bug in the model. Um, But yeah, of course. Um, Of course, when I say that the administration should federalize the defense supply chain, I worry that the president will use that power in order to reward his friends and his cronies um, and to uh, perhaps waste waste a lot of money along the way. But anything is better than what we have now where every single hospital, every single state has to create its own supply chain where prices are going through the roof where we don't know what the next shortage will be. Um, I I really worry it's gonna be on vaccine distribution. Um, I worry that we're going to have a cold storage crisis when we need to um, chill millions, hundreds of millions of doses of uh, of vaccine. And I just don't think that each state can solve these kind of problems on their own.
1: You're obviously a critic of the administration. Doesn't take a political reporter to pick up on that. The Senate Health Committee, which you serve on, uh, the Democrats were involved in the year and a half investigation of Medicaid chief Seema Verma, and how she spent millions of dollars on public relations consultants. That investigation landed recently. It appeared pretty damaging to me, yet she's still in seat. She survived that. Democrats are alarmed about the potential appointment of another Supreme Court justice who could take down the ACA, but Democrats might not be able to stop that either. When I look back on what Democrats are able to do to stop the Trump administration or to alter its policies what really can Democrats do right now, other than sit down and do a podcast with a political reporter and raise these concerns?
0: Well, I, I mean, listen, we've done a lot, right? I, I mean, again, the president was hell-bent on repealing the Affordable Care Act, and he has not. Um, that's not a small feat, right? That, that is um, to the benefit of 130 million Americans who would have their rates raised because of a pre-existing condition or the 25 million who have insurance because of the Affordable uh, care act. He's made clear that uh, along with many Republicans uh, in Congress that, you know, he would like to um, reduce Medicare benefits or trim the sales of the program. That He'd like to privatize aspects of further privatize aspects of it. We've been able to stop a lot of the, the worst changes that the president would like to make to the health care system. And along the way, you know, we've been able to make uh, a handful of improvements. You know, We did uh, pass pretty significant funding to combat coronavirus, um, something that the president didn't lead on. Um, by and large, Democrats led on, with the help of many Republicans, frankly. So uh, I think we've been able to impressively stop some of the worst excesses of this administration and been able to proactively move forward, especially in the last six months, Uh, some coronavirus funding and programming that has been greatly influenced by Democrats.
1: If the president appoints another justice, should Democrats, if they take back the Senate and take the White House next year, expand the Supreme Court?
0: Yeah, you know, 70 percent of the questions I get these days from reporters is that question, which is which is, I mean, kind of interesting to me, given that it's a hypothetical based on a bunch of other hypotheticals. Um, I don't know. Uh,
1: so should I come back in two weeks if there's a new justice and ask you the question again? No,
0: I'll come back in January when Democrats have won the Senate and control the presidency, because that question is moot uh, unless we win a whole mess of elections in November. And so, you know, I, I think my focus is on trying to you know muster a political movement to defeat this nominee and then um, winning as many elections as we can.
1: One, one other question I have. So you're critical of the administration's response. You grilled officials on potential meddling in uh, what the CDC has worked on. Do you worry that by putting a spotlight on these issues, and sometimes on issues that you might not have firsthand knowledge of, but you've read press reports about, that you could be contributing to lack of confidence if a vaccine arrives to fight coronavirus?
0: Yeah, it's such a good question, right? Uh, and, and it is honestly a question that I struggle with all the time, um, because you know much of what comes out of the CDC... Um, is good information, um, 10% of it may be influenced by politics. Much of what's on their website is insufficient, even if it's credible in and of itself. Um, and so I think we always have to you know, try to walk a fine line by calling out the president when he is attempting to manipulate uh, the uh, public health professionals um, in accordance with his political uh, interests uh, and trying to you know, reaffirm that still much of what you hear, not from the White House, but from uh, the CDC or NIH, is worth following. Um, but you know what? That's a position I shouldn't have to be in, right? I should not have to be in the position in which I have to choose uh, between calling out the president's blatant, irresponsible, reckless political interference into public health and trying to buttress public health. That's a problem the president has created by continuing to um, message uh, consistently in direct contravention of science. Uh, So I definitely struggle with it. I, 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 I try to walk the line, but I also regret the fact that this president has put us all in that position.
1: Last question. I know you're not a fan of hypotheticals, but we're doing this virtually. Have you thought of how long in the future we're going to have to continue to do things virtually? Are you preparing for a certain period of time to live and, and work this way uh, where we won't be able to congregate in person?
0: Um, I, I have thought about it, but I have some confidence that if we elect Joe Biden, um, our days of doing everything virtually will come to an end. Because I, I've seen what happened in Connecticut. Um, you know, Connecticut was a hot spot, And within about two months, we got down to the point where transmissions were under uh, 1%, where positive tests were under 1%. Um, we, The reason why we have coronavirus in Connecticut is, I think, largely because other states haven't gotten it under control and we can't stop it from coming into our state. So, you know, I think if Joe Biden gets into office and follows the Connecticut model, um, if that's concurrent with the distribution of a vaccine, um, that we can, you know, get back to some version of normal in this country, maybe we don't do as much handshake as we used to, uh, but our kids can get back to school, we can get back to work, we can go out to dinner with friends again. I think that only happens if Joe Biden is like
1: president. Well, Senator Chris Murphy, there are a bunch of things now on my to-do list to ask you about come January. Thank you for making time to answer some questions today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Dan Diamond. My thanks to Senator Chris Murphy for joining me and Jamie Geller in his office for setting up the conversation. Our producer is Annie Reese. Jenny Ament is our senior producer. And Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can subscribe to Politico Pulse Check wherever you're listening. You can help us by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app that helps new listeners discover the show. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus in our Politico nightly newsletter and in our Politico Pulse morning newsletter that I co-author. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll be back again with you next week.